Welcome. You're listening to the Hashtag STR Ask podcast from Stand to Reason. I'm Amy Hall, and with me is Greg Kokel. Hello there, Amos. Hello, Greg. Here's a question from Amber. How should we respond to a Jewish person who claims that preventing their access to abortion in cases where the mental or physical health of the mother is at risk is a violation of their religious freedom and therefore a violation of the First Amendment? Uh if people would see me, they'd see me like, huh? How is keeping a person from killing their unborn child a violation of their religious freedom? That's my question. I don't understand. Unless you have a religious view that it's okay to kill unborn human beings, okay? And uh, what about if you had a religious view that it's okay to kill infants? Some people do. All right, that's part of cultic, uh, satanic ritual religion, apparently. But just because you call a deeply immoral act religious doesn't mean it's protected by the First Amendment. That has never been the case. That has never been the case. In fact, um, <clears throat> and you'd be more versed on this than I would be, but as I recall, the state of Utah was only allowed to be a state because the Mormon Church recanted their religious view of plural marriage. Otherwise, they were not going to be allowed to be in the Union. And when they recanted that with a convenient revelation, then, uh, that's the way I take it at least, uh, then they were allowed to be. So, wait a minute, that's their religious view. Yeah, and it's not a good one. There are limits even to that. The First Amendment is not without limit, you know, in terms of religious freedom. What that was is the Church is not to to establish a religious, a religion. I mean, when you look at the details of the First Amendment, but regardless, even even religious liberties broadly construed do not um, entail the liberty to do significant harm to another human being. So I, I don't know why why this is—I don't even know how the First Amendment applies to this issue. Well, it seems to me that—I agree, Greg. I, I don't think anyone—having access to abortion is a religious issue. No, there's no religion, at least in this country, where there's an obligation to have access to abortion. Like, that's just not part not of a religion. religion. Right. It's not it's a not, religious thing. Uh, I think what they probably mean is maybe uh, my beliefs, my conscience. It's, And I'm sympathetic to the idea that people shouldn't be made to go against their conscience. Surely, I, I, even if you're not religious, I don't think I don't think under the First Amendment that an atheist should be made to do something against his conscience say something against his conscience, do something, you know, for the most part, unless it's preventing them from killing somebody, of course. Um, so I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that your conscience falls under the First Amendment, but to how, say how, that... Wait, how is it a conscience issue to have the... Liber well, you're going there, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but to say that you need <clears throat> access to killing your unborn child as a matter of conscience... Seems no very sense. odd to me. Like I can see saying, you n well, let's say you're a nurse and you don't want to be made to take part in an abortion. That I can understand, even for an atheist who thinks it's wrong to to kill unborn children, even if it's they're not religious at all. I think that's wrong, and you should, mm -hmm. no one should be made to do things against their conscience or say things against their conscience. But to say that you have to have 
access to abortion, that would make it sound like that is some sort of a sacrament in your religion. Mm-hmm. Or, so, a, or a natural right, a, a divinely ordained right of some sort. Right, which is it's just not part of Judaism. Like, there is it is it a, a it's it's not part of anything. It doesn't. This is one of those things that don't make sense. If you don't give me the right to kill my child, then it's a violation of my conscience because my religious liberty gives me the right to kill my unborn child. I I, I mean I that's the the, the, the that's as, as sanitized I think as it can get. It it doesn't really make sense. I think what this comes down to is people are trying to counter the idea that um, they think Christians are against abortion for religious reasons. Well, to the the extent that we're against abortion because we're against killing innocent people, yes, that's part of our religion. We don't kill innocent people. But it's not only part of religion, this idea that we don't kill innocent people. This is something, it's a shared value in our nation that we don't kill innocent people people. But I think people are very confused about why Christians are against abortion in the first place. So what they want to do is say, um, well, you're against abortion because of religion, so I'm for abortion because of religion. Now what do we do? Uh-huh. How do we, de- how do we, That's right. and the way you decide between them is you look at what we're talking about. What is abortion? Yeah, that's right. It, it's, it, it treats abortion like a morally neutral item that only has value because someone either has a religious conviction for it or a religious conviction against it. And this is why characteristically at Stand a Reason, only until recently, <clears throat> we have never used um, the Bible or any kind of religious argument to deal with abortion because there's no need to do that to demonstrate that it's immoral. The moral logic of the pro-life view is very simple. Although it, it seems like a lot of people don't grasp it or don't employ it in circumstances like this. And here's the way it goes. It's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. Two, abortion takes the life of an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. Now, you can add accept, you can add qualifiers. It's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being for the reasons that people give for having an abortion, but et cetera, et cetera. But the, this is the basic point. Um, and so uh, now it turns out, and I have pointed this out, that you can make an argument against abortion from the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. And I've been doing that recently, but only with Christians who acknowledge the Bible is an authority in their lives. And I show, look at this is from God's perspective, that unborn John the Baptist is John the Baptist, that unborn Jesus, the zygote, is Jesus, the Lord, according to Elizabeth, John's mother. So we can make that case. But that isn't, this is why your point is so important. We are not looking at a a parochial religious belief on either side. We are just setting religion aside and we're just looking at what's right, what is obviously right and wrong. Is it okay to annihilate another human being for the reasons people give for an abortion? Whatever they happen to be. And by the way, that, even the more extreme cases, which we can be sensitive to, Yet it's still like rape or incest or whatever. It, it a fourteen-year-old, a thirteen-year-old that's pregnant. All right. Well, that's so traumatic for them. It's more traumatic for the child who gets killed. Yes, it's traumatic. There's no good ending for this. Largely, you know, there may be a redemptive element with the child being born. I've seen that firsthand. But there, there's no, there's no, um, you know, th- this is a bad situation. And and what abortion does is it just aggravates the moral 
harm that's being done to human beings by taking the life of the one that's that's most innocent. Um, I guess in a case of rape, you could say the, the the mom is just as innocent. Okay, I'll grant that. But this, but the mom isn't defenseless, and the child is defenseless. And I'm not in, implying anything about her not defending herself. I'm just saying that it's a t- <laughs> an adult and a child, or an unborn child, are two different vulnerabilities. Okay, and it's obvious. And uh, and so, if there's any question at all. Let's see. There shouldn't be any question at all about the vulnerability of the unborn child, and that we should be protecting the unborn child from this kind of harm. And nothing is a justification for taking this life, except when the mother's life is genuinely at risk, and then it's a choice between one life or another. Okay. Or one life and no life. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, that's right. One life or the other, or or no lives. You, you, if you're going to save some or both, will die. That's exactly right. And that's a moral. That's a that is an equation, a moral equation that has to be a decision that has to be made based on the greatest good. And uh, anyway, so that's that's a little more complicated. But the point is, um, characteristically, that's not what we're facing here with abortion. And um, and no matter what difficulty that obtains for the for the mother in this case, it is not morally equivalent to the difficulty that obtains for the child in the case of abortion. There's no comparison. So the way I think I would go about this, Amber is the first thing I would do is try to maybe just ask her, do you, what do you, why do you think I'm against abortion? Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think people are against abortion? That's a great question. And then hear her answer. And then you can have a conversation about why you're against abortion. And where I think this will go, the first place this will go is uh, it's not a human being. So at that point, now you can argue from science when a human being begins to exist, begins to grow, and now the the argument will turn to, but they're not a valuable human being. Mm-hmm. And then you can, here, here you can even just appeal to the common value we have in this country of universal human rights. Mm-hmm. Very important, right. Why, why would you deny the rights to a human being? And when has that ever worked the, out well? The right to before? life, the right yes. to life in particular here, yeah. Um, and of course, we have the sled test, and you can say, "Well, is it is it a, a moral difference for a human being to be smaller than other human beings, or to be dependent on other human beings, and um, or to be in a different environment, or to be in a different level of development? Those are not moral categories mm-hmm. that should disqualify a human being from any sort of of rights. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to take it from there, but." And then you can point out, well, you can see the only thing religious here, and it's not only religious, is that I value human beings and I think they're intrinsically valuable. Now, there are a lot of secular people who believe that too, and maybe they don't have grounding for that necessarily, and I think the fight for that truth is going to get more difficult in the future. But for now, I think most people want to say that they agree with the value of human beings. So you can have a whole conversation and say, look, so this isn't a this isn't a religious question, though most people think it is. And hopefully at least you can help her to understand maybe she won't drop this objection, but 
I think the objection stems from a misunderstanding of our argument. You know, it just occurred to me, too, the question that could be asked to, to really um, accentuate this point you're making, Amy, is that do you think an atheist could be pro-life? Yeah, Bernard Nathanson, famously, uh, he's no longer an atheist, but uh, he might not even be alive, but he was the uh, director of the National Abortion Rights Action League, you know, and what ran one of the biggest abortion clinics in the country, in the state of New York. And he, an atheist, um, became pro-life. There are whole organizations that are secular pro-life organizations. Mm -hmm. So so that if, if an atheist could be pro-life, then the question would be, what are the reasons that an atheist would give to be pro-life? And the reasons cannot be <laughs> religious, obviously. Right. They're going to be secular. And of course, this is the way we make our case all the time. But uh, because this uh, the intuition, a natural intuition that we all have, the human beings are special and that they have natural rights and especially and foremost, the right to life, which means the right not to be killed. <laughs> That's it. All right. It's amazing to me how many people are against capital punishment but are for abortion. It's so weird. Yeah. Talk about inconsistency. And, of course, people say the opposite way, but, of course, the difference between Guilty and innocent is a huge Oh, difference. yes, of course. <laughs> this is why I make the point. We're talking about an innocent human being here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. All right, let's go on to a question from Jim. If Orthodox Christianity holds that God does not have parts, how do we reconcile that with the fact that Jesus is now forever incarnated in a glorified body? Does this aspect of theology proper now apply only to the other two members of the Trinity? Well, th- yeah, th- this is a difficult oh, question. Yeah. Okay. This does is a, does the ahead, idea that they don't have parts only mm-hmm. apply to the other yeah, two? This yeah, this is the, the idea that God is simple, um, and not simple-minded, but simple, that he doesn't have parts, and uh, so he's not complicated in a certain fashion, and uh, ontologically uh, complicated. I think this is a, a hard— um, it's it's a sophisticated question because it's a sophisticated issue that I don't know I'm adequate to traffic in very deeply. Um, and I think that there is the, the, the simplicity of God is something that's a little bit theologically controversial. It depends on who you talk to. Uh, or maybe it's the impassibility of God, but yeah, that's something different. Impassibility is God doesn't have changing emotions, okay? Um, the simplicity of God may be that that may not be in question. However, um, there's not a problem here. I know enough to know there's not a problem because nothing about God changes ontologically. God's being doesn't change uh, in the incarnation. As we've mentioned before, God doesn't become a human being who has parts. God takes on a human nature, Okay, and so the nature of God is not changed. It is, but there's added to the nature of God in the person of Christ. This part of the mystery of the the um, incarnation, there is added a human nature. So, you know, that's the way that kind of works together, and uh, the, the simplicity of God is not compromised by the incarnation. Um, it's a, it's just a mistaken thinking to suggest that's the case, because the simplicity regards God's nature, not the human nature of Jesus. So, but you would say Jesus now has parts. 
Well, yeah, human bodies have parts. But just that it's not, the human nature is not the mixed divine. with the divine nature. It's it's joined to the divine nature, but it not it's not the divine nature itself. Mixed, mixed is a great word there. It, it is joined, and this is where, and we're both kind of like <laughs> trying to figure out the right words to capture it without maligning it or distorting it. Um, and this is where you you run into some difficulty. So I w- I would just simply state that the divine nature is is not mixed with the human nature, um, but it is. And I think there's one of the creeds kind of labors at making this point clear. Um, but it's not you're not dividing the substance. You're not confusing the natures. I think is the language of the creed, uh, Nicene or maybe. Chalcedonian, whatever. Those old guys wrote a long time ago. Um, so there is labored to make this distinction. Let's just simply say, for our purposes, that the divine nature remains simple, uh, though there is a connection, a unity with another nature, which is a human nature, which is not necessarily simple. And you talked about that in the previous episode, Greg, when we talked about the incarnation. So if anyone has more questions on that, Mm-hmm. Go back to the previous episode and and listen to that again. Or go go down go back to the Chalcedonian Creed. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. All right, here's a question from James. What does it mean to seek the presence of God? As believers, don't we already have God's presence? Um yeah, that's a great question and it's very practical and it's one that I um think about a lot, you know, um James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, it's using kind of a location analogy. Get closer to. That's that's spatial. But um, God isn't spatial, and our souls aren't spatial. Uh, we don't. They, neither God's essence nor our souls are located at a place in three-dimensional space. Our souls are not in our body in that sense. There's no place for them to sit. There's no need for that. Uh, They're immaterial, so they don't occupy three-dimensional space. What James is talking about is something different, but it's somewhat mysterious to me because he's not talking about ontology, to use a metaphysical, philosophical term. In other words, our existence, if the Spirit is in us, then we are united with the Spirit. We are born again. So in one sense, God doesn't get any closer to us than than the, uh, the than the new birth, okay? And then we are we are spiritually born again, and the Spirit dwells with we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's not spatial. Uh, but there's kind of an intimacy there. So a lot of times when people are saying they're seeking God's face, is that the way the language is? Uh, the presence of the God. The presence of God. Sometimes I think it's probably synonymous with the idea of seeking God's face. They are actively trying to feel closer to God, be aware of the presence of the God. There's a famous uh, book called Practicing the Presence of God, written many hundreds of years ago, a um, smaller booklet. But it's just it's getting into the habit of being aware that God is there with you all the time. I think of Coram Deo. I was talking to my my 17-year-old daughter who loved Latin, and I was talking about, you know, my own life, wanting to live Coram Deo. I said, do you know what that means? And she said, she she translated it for me in Greek. 
yeah, and uh, I mean, not Greek, but Latin. I said, yeah, she just had the words. And I said, yeah, that means to be in the presence of God. And, uh, and uh, I want to be aware all the time that I am in God's presence and comport myself in a way that's appropriate and be close to God, just like two people can be together. You could have sweethearts that get married. They just are always hanging out together. They're in each other's presence, okay? They're seeking that communion in relationship. And I think this is what this is talking about. It's totally subjective awareness. It's not anything metaphysical uh, since God is already in us. But it's just this instructing our minds and our awarenesses, so to speak, uh, of the fact that God is always there. He is always with us. He is always watching. He's always caring. He's always loving. There are different things you could focus in on, depending on the need of the moment. So if you're contemplating sin, then you're thinking of God in a different way than if you're seeking loving communion. Okay, there's another aspect of God being there for you. Uh, but I think it's a very healthy thing. I think that's what people mean as they're trying to be increase their awareness of God's continual uh, presence in their life within them and around them, caring for them, walking with them. And that has, I think, a salutary transformative effect on us. Sound yeah, right? I think, I think it's, uh, I think you're right. I think it is an awareness of, of God. It is an intimacy with God. It comes in moments of intimacy when you're praying, when you're reading the Bible. And there is a certain desire for us to want this awareness of him because it's beautiful. I mean, it is is quite the experience. Now it's fleeting, though. Somewhat. Yeah, it's, it, it's not all the time. And and this is where I, um, I just want people to be careful because there was one time I read this book where, and it wasn't about this topic. It was about a completely different topic. But it always used the phrase "the presence of God" instead of just saying God. Hmm. The presence of God, the presence of God, the presence of God, instead of just saying God. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I started to think, what are you saying here? Because when I hear that, what I hear is that you're, if that's all you're saying, <laughs> instead of just saying God, are you seeking an experience more than you're seeking God himself? Is there a feeling you're trying to get? Because that's the presence of God isn't what we seek. We seek God. Now, experiencing his presence is a wonderful thing. But what you are seeking is not a feeling. What you are seeking is God himself and to know him and to be close to him. And so... Let's even say to be close to him, though, suggests the intimacy that you want right, to have, and I, you know. And this is, like I said, I, I think that experience is wonderful. But I, I just want people to be careful that they're not seeking a feeling, the feeling results from being with God, but you should be seeking God. Sometimes you will have that feeling. Sometimes you won't have that feeling. But if you're chasing after a feeling, that puts you in kind of a danger of trying all these different practices to try and create this feeling within you. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a real relationship, you're seeking closeness to the person. And sometimes that is experienced in certain intimacy and feelings and experiences Sometimes it isn't, mm-hmm. but you but you are desiring the person. You're not using the person to gain an experience. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of putting it. And so I think I think I just think it's tricky just to make sure that you are seeking God and you're seeking intimacy with God. And sometimes you will experience that His presence in a way that you won't experience if you're not seeking an intimacy with God. But just make sure you're seeking God and not a feeling. Mm-hmm. 
I guess that's what I'm saying. All right. Um, I think that's it, Greg. We're out of time. Well, yes, we are. <laughs> well, thank you, Amber and Jim and James. We got through three questions today. We appreciate hearing from you. If you have a question, send it on Twitter with the hashtag STRask, or you can go through our website and the hashtag STRask page, and you'll find a link there, and you can send us your question. Thanks for listening. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Yeah.